Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right. Today, we've got the story of Petty Officer Michael Mansour. Michael Mansour was a Navy SEAL serving in Iraq in 2006 during the Battle of Ramadi, and for actions on September 29th of that year, would be awarded the Medal of Honor. To get up to speed on on what Petty Officer Mansour is doing in Ramadi, we're going to back up a little bit. We're calling this window really March to November of 2006 as the Battle of Ramadi. But it's confusing. It's confusing because there was the Battle of Ramadi in 2004, shortly after the U.S., invasion kicked off in 2003. Then there was a major battle in Ramadi in 2015 as coalition forces and Iraqi forces pushed the now a, a strong ISIS force out of Ramadi. So when you say battle of Ramadi, just in a 15-year window, really a 12-year window, there's multiple battles of Ramadi. Add to that, are you talking about one of these windows or are you talking about all of the time in between? You know, the window between the 2004 Battle of Ramadi and the 2006 version that we're going to talk about today, there were dozens of Americans killed in the city. So how do you talk about what happened to them? If it wasn't in the first Battle of Ramadi, it wasn't in the second battle, it was just in Ramadi. So is it the story of the city? Do we talk about the history of each unit, you know, independent of the city? It's a challenge for... It's, it's a challenge today, and it's going to be a challenge for military historians to figure out how do we best tell the story of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Because we didn't, you know, we don't have the luxury of in World War II, you can follow battle lines on a map. And at some point, you know, we land on the beaches of Normandy in June. By, you know, a few days later, the, the beachhead is secure. By the end of July, Normandy is secure. We don't have to go back and fight for that again. It's a, little, it's a little closer to World War I where these lines would be set in place and you would see you know, two, three, four, 12 battles over a certain piece of land. How do you separate those? And then, of course, there's people dying in between those battles. How do you talk about what happened to that person? That's a pretty good comparison in terms of trying to get your head around timelines with Iraq and Afghanistan and what the U.S. military has been involved with for the last 20 years. To help narrow in on the timeline around Petty Officer Mansour, we're going to talk the second battle of Ramadi. So again, we're talking March to November of 2006. Ramadi is a city of a half million inhabitants, 500,000, that sits west of Baghdad. It's approximately 30 miles west of Fallujah, 60 miles west of Baghdad. So you leave Baghdad uh, driving west through the Euphrates River Valley. You're going to go through Fallujah, a pretty substantial battlefield multiple times over the last 20 years. Then you drive another 30 miles out of Fallujah, you're going to run into Ramadi. The Euphrates River Valley throughout the conflict in Iraq was a pipeline from Syria. We've talked already about soldiers stationed right on the Syrian border and how they were dealing with foreign fighters coming in. The foreign fighter threat was predominantly coming through this channel. It was a natural uh, means of travel before the war, during the war, it's where cities are set up, it's where roads are set up, and it just fighters flew, flowed from Syria 
through um, Husaiba up on the border. They would end up in Fallujah and Ramadi and make their way to Baghdad. One of the reasons that Ramadi became a hot spot is it's in Anbar province, which is a heavily Sunni area. Many of the foreign fighters coming into Iraq were Sunni. They were taking part in um, they were taking part in more of a global jihad aligned with Al Qaeda in Iraq and the different forms and shapes that would take than a necessarily nationalist uprising to expel the invaders. So there's multiple conflicts going on in Iraq for quite a while here. And in this window, 2006, there's at the very least a sectarian war going on across the country where Shiites and Sunnis are fighting one another. And the United States and the coalition forces are in a mess trying to figure out how do you not accidentally back aside? How do you somehow stand in the middle? It's, it was nasty. Then you've got uh, Shia groups rising up like in Sadr City, just trying to get American forces out because we're viewed as occupiers, viewed as invaders. That's a different fight. Those are mostly native Iraqis. Then you have this fight out in Anbar, which absolutely has plenty of Iraqis in their ranks, but you're dealing with a lot of foreign fighters as well. And that raises an issue. It changes the game. It's a different battle. A foreign fighter coming from a different country is going to view the fight differently. They're not going to, they're not interested in a, well, you would see with, to, to not go down a, a rabbit hole here, you would see the United States negotiate with some of these forces in and around Baghdad that ran Shia militias. There could be dialogue because we're talking about the future of the country, the future of power within Baghdad, within Iraq. There was, there was dialogue to be had. There's not much dialogue to be had with a Salafi jihadi group bent on destroying America. That's a more challenging sit down at the negotiating table. The tactics are also different. The use of suicide bombs and suicide car bombs, suicide vests, any form of suicide attack is a predominantly Salafi jihadi Sunni mechanism in the Iraq war. It, I'm not going to draw the line and say it never happened during the conflicts with Shia Iraqis, but it's heavily skewed towards Anbar province, heavily skewed towards the Salafi Jihadi groups of which the premium one is, it goes by a lot of different names, but to make the most sense of it, we're going to call it Al Qaeda in Iraq. Al Qaeda in Iraq is who coalition forces are fighting during the second battle of Ramadi and who petty officer Mike Mansour has been engaged in combat with for some time. The problem in Ramadi is that the local population isn't 100% anti Al Qaeda. They're not 100% on board either, but the same thing we would see in, well, the same thing we've seen for the last 20 years is it's always a nice gray middle ground and the people have to decide, do we back these strange looking Americans that are sometimes here, or do we back, you know, these folks that maybe they're Iraqi, maybe they're not, maybe it's a tough spot for the civilians. And Ramadi is one of those places where it's closer to gray. They're they're certainly not expelling the Al Qaeda elements on their own. What that means is they have freedom of maneuver. So the insurgents are moving around the city without any issues. There's not enough Americans there to really stop 
the growth of the insurgency. They are able to plant bombs with abandon. They're able to block off routes, take over hospitals and government buildings. I mean, it's a free for all. It's the wild west. This is not um, the insurgents come out at night. It's the insurgents run the day. They are they are they own Ramadi. So we end up with what becomes known as the Second Battle of Ramadi. That formally kind of that's probably not the right word. Right now, it looks like the history books are going to say it kicks off in March. But the fact is, Ramadi's been a fight for years. It never stopped. It's in March and April of 2006 is when the United States decides enough. We got to get our we got to get a handle on Ramadi. And one of the things they do is send a lot of new units, including SEAL Team Three, of which Petty Officer Mike Munsoor is a part of, into Ramadi in an effort to pacify this city. I think I saw somewhere that it referred to the Second Battle of Ramadi as a peacekeeping mission. It wasn't. I don't know that that's how I would classify this. But the idea is we got to get this thing under control. The way that we're going to go about this is different than we did in Fallujah, where we called all civilians out and went in heavy handed. This is going to be done a little differently. We're not asking for the civilians to leave. Even though there's reports and people start to flee, the idea is we're going to win the population. So we're going to go in slow and steady, not calling in airstrikes left and right. A little more slow and steady, a little more deliberate, and we're going to squeeze the insurgents out. The term that's been used, the term that's used actually describing the strategy is island hopping, harkening back to the Pacific theater of World War II, where we went from one to the next and kind of slowly pushed the Japanese back to their main main island. The same general idea is holding true for the Battle of Ramadi. The idea being, let's slowly move in every block, two blocks, three blocks, build a new combat outpost or cop. We'll build a cop, we'll put in American forces with Iraqi police, and now we've constricted the insurgent freedom of movement a little bit more, block by block, house by house. These outposts serve a couple purposes. One is it allows the Iraqi police that haven't been able to get into the city at all and the American forces to interact with the local population, hopefully show them, hey, at least there's an alternative. If we're not, if nobody's there, there's not even an alternative being presented to what al-Qaeda in Iraq is offering. So you know, we don't necessarily know that they're going to say we'd rather run with the Iraqi government, but they don't even have a choice in 2005 and early 2006. So we're going to build these cops. We're going to stand them up. We're going to get closer to the population. And another thing, kind of a side benefit, if you will, when you put up a new outpost in enemy territory, it draws fire. It pulls the enemy out of the woodwork. If you're having a hard time identifying who the bad guys are, because, because the bad guys and the good guys look alike and they look like citizens and you don't know what to do. If you put up a fixed structure in their backyard, they tend to show themselves. And they did. As soon as Americans started putting up bases in March, April, May, June, through the summer, the enemy fighters came out in hordes. There were some massive attacks across Ramadi. One of the largest taking place, I believe, in July, where almost across the entire city, there was uh, mass attacks on every outpost, that, just about every American and Iraqi outpost across the city. Mike Mansour, Petty Officer Mike Mansour has been engaged in this fighting from the get-go. He was there and he arrived there in April. So right as the U.S. forces were deciding it's time to drop that hammer, his team was involved in dealing that hammer blow. He's a machine gunner, which means he's carrying a lot of weight, hundreds of pounds in the Iraqi summer, right? We're getting right into summer here. And he's going on a lot of missions. The SEALs um, along with other special operations forces at this time, would have a, a wide variety of mission sets. They would be on 
um, direct action raids. They'd be in Overwatch. They for there'd be direct action raids against high value targets. They might be in Overwatch protecting conventional or other special operations forces, and they might be training the local Iraqi units or all three at once, plus a dozen other things. Petty Officer Mansoor would be awarded the Silver Star, actually, for earlier during the Battle of Ramadi. They'd be engaged in a firefight, and there would be a guy in uh, in May. So pretty soon after he gets to Ramadi, he'd be engaged in a pretty heavy firefight. Seal gets wounded, stuck out in the street. Petty Officer Mansoor, the machine gunner, runs out into enemy fire, fully exposes himself to, uh, to the dangers of that enemy crossfire, and uh, lays down suppressive fire and pulls his wounded buddy to safety, an act that he absolutely could have lost his life doing, saw his wounded friend out there in the street and risked everything to go get him. For that, he'd be awarded the Silver Star. Moving forward into September. So April to September, Petty Officer Mansoor has been on a lot of missions. He's been in a lot of fights. He's, t- he's played a very, very significant role in this, in this, the second battle of Ramadi. On 29 September, he finds himself on a rooftop overwatching a portion of the city after a, a minor engagement he kicked off. Now they're on the rooftop and insurgent elements start to attack their position. They're hit with RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, as well as small arms fire. And as enemy forces start to maneuver closer, it's not super obvious, I should say. This is a, a clustered, chaotic urban environment. It's not like you it's not an open field where you can see people moving towards you. So somehow there is an enemy fighter closer to the building than maybe anticipated. And that enemy fighter throws a grenade up onto the roof. So the roof is a flat top with, uh, with raised walls just enough to provide cover. So the seals and the other folks in the roof could fire over, look over, not a flat, not like a residential roof. Um, you know, think, think like a commercial building type thing. Grenade comes up, actually hits petty officer Mansoor and falls to the ground without hesitation. He falls on that grenade, covers it with his body bearing the full force of that blast, which would kill him. He'd, he'd survive the initial blast or die shortly thereafter at the age of 25, but it would save the lives of the other men on that rooftop with him that day. Petty officer Mansoor, when that grenade hit him in the chest, was standing right next to a stairwell. He had the opportunity to do a lot of things, and I think it's worth diving into those. He could have jumped down the stairwell. He could have run away. The other guys on the roof couldn't have. They weren't next to the stairwell. Um, he was the one. He's the only one on that rooftop that could have walked away from that blast. But then we get into a couple other things, and I've heard feedback on some other stories we've talked about where it's why don't they just throw it or kick it or try to do something? It that that type of com- where I get a little lost with that type of comment is it makes it sound as though there's one answer better than the other. And I don't think there is. There's, there's a consideration that goes through your mind in a split second and you have to make a decision. So a grenade, when you throw a grenade, you'll see people pull the pin that arms it. And then when you release the pin, when you release the spoon, it happens when you throw the grenade, the, the, the spoon pops off. It's a metal spoon. It starts a fuse. That fuse is a timer. That's the reason the grenade doesn't blow up right when somebody throws it. That fuse can be between four and eight seconds long. It's not something you want to play with because you don't know for sure. Even U.S. grenades of, of you know, some of the higher quality in the world, you don't mess around with it and pretend you're going to let it sit in your hand for a few seconds before you throw it. You get rid of it. The time 
shouldn't vary. The time varies in that four to eight second window. The reason I say that is when that grenade hits Petty Officer Mansoor in the chest and falls to the ground, he doesn't know if he has six seconds or half a second before it detonates. And that's a big difference. Let's say he decides, I'm going to pick this thing up and throw it. What if he leans down to pick it up and it goes off? So now everybody on the rooftop is wounded or killed. What if he has seven seconds? Well, if he has seven seconds, there's enough time for him to pick it up and throw it back. But you don't know. And you can't assume that you have the seven seconds because if you assume wrong, then everybody might die. Now, if you're in a, if you're on that rooftop by yourself, do whatever you want. Because if it goes off while you're throwing it or it goes off because you lay on top of it, it's probably going to be the same effect. But if he picks that grenade up to throw it and it goes off sooner than he thinks, it's going to kill everyone on that rooftop. His action was not designed to save his life. His action, his instinct, what he did without hesitation, without thinking, what was ingrained in his body, in his mind, and in his actions was to save his brothers. It was pure love. That's all it was. There's not time in that situation to think. There's only time to act. And his act was that he knew the only way to absolutely save the men to his left and right was to put his body on top of that grenade to muffle the blast so that they too, those others could live. For that action, on September 29th, 2006, Petty Officer Michael Monsoor will be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.